ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and today we'll listen to the second half of my conversation with Dr. Paul Nelson about the widely published announcement that Google's DeepMind AlphaFold had solved one of the longest standing problems in biology, the protein folding problem. Last time we discussed what AlphaFold is actually doing. Operating is a sophisticated comparator rather than a predictor from first principles, and why this limits AlphaFold's ability to handle unfamiliar sequences. Now we'll pick up the conversation as I ask Dr. Nelson about these isolated regions. So you had mentioned something to me earlier about what you called the isolated region of sequence space. Is that related to this? Totally. So uh, sequence space is an abstract notion that uh, is fairly easy to visualize. Again, if you can do it with a natural language parallel, but let me just do it this way. We've got an alphabet of 20, 22, depending on how you count. Let's say 20, 20 amino acids. And let's say you have a protein that's a, actually a rather small protein of 100 amino acids in length. So again, beads on a wire, 100 beads on a wire. Now, uh, you say, well, how many different 100 amino acid proteins might there be? Well, that is 20 raised to the power of 100. All right. That is a huge space. Yeah. And 100 is a short protein. There are proteins that are very much longer than that. I think yeah. we're, we're picking a, a kind of a dinky protein when you say 100 amino acids in length. So sequence space is an abstract notion representing all the possible variants that could exist using a 20-character alphabet where you've got, again, I'll, I'll go back to natural language. Let's say you've got a, a, a sentence of 100 characters in length, and uh, you know, including punctuation and so forth, and you've got a 26-character alphabet in English. Well, you can imagine that could be that sentence could be any number of sentences, right? Although, frankly, there are more constraints on English than there are, I think, in in the protein sequence space. So, I hope that helps with that notion. It's it's a large space indeed. Yeah, it reminds me of David Berlinski gave a similar example with natural language. I think he compared the total number. If you take the alphabet, the the number of sequences that those characters could take versus the number of actual coherent sentences that would result. And, and I think his comparison was a planet size versus a dime size. Yes. You could write a program to randomly sc scramble letters in some set interval, you know, let's just say a hundred, a hundred characters, right? And the overwhelming output of that uh, if the program is is churning away, is going to be gibberish. Yeah, uh, yeah. The intelligible English sentences will be a tiny fraction of a fraction of that whole space. Right, right. Okay, so we've got this huge sequence space. We have some proteins that are isolated in this sequence space. So now bring it back to AlphaFold. Why is that a challenge for what AlphaFold's doing? Because you can't lever off of existing sequences when you move to a region where there aren't cousins where there aren't cognates. Uh, so if you look at how the algorithm works, the first input step is a multiple sequence alignment where you've got dozens and dozens of sequences that are 
clearly related in terms of their amino acid composition, right? You align them very much the way that if I gave you a bunch of English sentences that were variants of some original, uh, let's say uh, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, and you've got a bunch of variants of the famous soliloquy to be or not to be, where there's a spelling error or uh, a word is dropped, or uh, in some way or another, from the first folio until today, there's been some modification of that sequence. But you can see it's mostly there, right? Mm-hmm. You look at the, you look at the soliloquy and to be or not to be that is the question. Blah blah blah. It's mostly there. You align all those variants and you can see where the changes have occurred. When you move to a region, isolated region of sequence space, all of that helper information, those cousins, those cognates, drop away. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you can take one of these isolated sequences and feed it into GenBank, into the software that they use to compare sequences, and the report comes back to you from the software, no significant similarity found. You've moved off into a region of sequence space that's all by itself, as far as you can tell. Okay, but the big question here, Paul, is, is that a rare occurrence? Is it odd to find? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, one of the surprising discoveries over the past almost 20 years now, with with the entrance into biology of automated uh, DNA sequencing, is that uh, for any species that one examines, it will have sequences that are coding for stuff, <laughs> and they don't have any matches. You, you put those sequences into what's known as BLAST, Basic Local Alignment Search Tool, and their BLAST comes in a variety of flavors, different, different algorithms, but basically all doing sequence matching, and you find there, there's, there's nothing out there in the databases that corresponds to that sequence that you've extracted from Drosophila or from yeast, you know, or from Homo sapiens. And the fraction of these sequences, which are known variously as orphans, also known as taxonomically restricted genes or lineage-specific genes, that fraction can be remarkably high. In some cases, for instance, in viruses, it can be over half of, of what's in that virus. And when this was first discovered, I, I remember vividly I had you know, defended my dissertation at Chicago and was beginning to work as a senior fellow at Discovery. And as one genome after another was published, commentators uh, looking at the data as they were assembled and, and compared to other genomes would say, where did all this unique genetic information come from? Because it didn't fit the prevailing model, which is new genes come from old, and every gene present in us has an, has its relatives somewhere out there in sequence space. So anyway, the short answer is no. It's quite common to have, as you look at different species, to find that some fraction of their genetic uh, heritage is unique to that group. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, Paul, that you are strongly resisting the urge, as, as am I, <laughs> to talk about the implications of this for phylogenetics and things like that. But let's, let's set that aside for another time. That's an incredibly important and, and interesting topic, but a huge one in its own right. Let me, let me read a quote 
to you from Carlos Rubiera, who is writing at the Oxford Protein Informatics Group about AlphaFold. He says, while we have a general solution to the protein structure prediction problem, we could quibble with that, I guess, but he says, while we have a general solution, we do not yet have a universal one. Some of the structures were predicted with low accuracy, even by AlphaFold 2, suggesting that further work might be required in particular target families. The protein data bank, which was used for training, displays a well-known bias towards easy-to-crystallize proteins, and it's unclear how this will affect its usefulness for the dark proteome, is the term he uses. And that dark proteome, if you kind of follow the link that he shared, is a term that's being used for what you were just talking about. And it says, estimated something like 14% of the proteome in archaean bacteria, and as much as 44 to 54 percent of the proteome in eukaryotes and viruses is dark, meaning it's it's unknown how it would fold compared with other with other things. Yes. It's That's a, a rem- huge number. I mean, we're talking it's half. Huge, it's a huge number. And uh, one way to think about this is to realize that, you know, everyone solves the problems that they can solve. Mm-hmm. And what could be solved with respect to protein folding began with the, the very hard challenge of getting proteins, A, to crystallize, and then to use X-ray crystallography and more recently other techniques like uh, what's known as cryo-EM to characterize those structures and solve them physically, by, by physical means, okay? But to do that, to solve a protein structure via physical means by shooting x-rays at it and looking at the diffraction pattern, you need to have a crystal. Mm-hmm. But not all proteins crystallize. In fact, it's estimated that 30% of sequences in proteins that are 30 amino acids or longer drawn at random from the human proteome are what are known as intrinsically disordered regions. What that means is they won't crystallize. They're important. They're important for all kinds of functional reasons, but they won't yield a crystal structure that you can shoot an X-ray at and get a structure that can then be solved by physical means. As that fraction of intrinsically disordered regions and intrinsically disordered proteins goes up, those proteins move into this sort of dark realm as it's been called, where you know they're there and you know they have functional roles, for instance, in cell communication, in DNA binding and so forth, but their functional roles require them to be floppy, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or if they do assume a structure, it's a structure that is highly dynamic, that changes over a time course so that it's not stable from one moment to the next. And it's because of the functional role that they play that they have this hard to characterize structure. So remarkably, these intrinsically disordered proteins turn out to be a very high percentage of so-called orphan proteins. And the two seem to track with each other that, that when you look at orphan genes uh, and try to you know suss out what their protein product would be. It turns out to be intrinsically disordered. A friend told me recently, he's actually a, a computer scientist who's working with me on a Discovery-funded project called OrphanBase. He was just at a meeting in Europe 
where one of the members of the AlphaFold 2 uh, research team called these intrinsically disordered proteins the adversaries <laughs> <laughs> because they steadfastly resist a solution in terms of the AlphaFold 2 pipeline. And again, I would uh, I would call on a parallel to natural language. Again, I, I I urge the reader think of this as a rough analogy at best, but I think it w- would be helpful. You can think about English texts as having a core of universally conserved words, and the, but, you know, pick your favorite high frequency stable kind of module that you're going to find almost in almost any imaginable text. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, a novel by John Steinbeck compared to the owner's manual of my Honda Pilot, 2000 right. Pilot, right? Or compare the two of those to a book by Darwin or a molecular biology textbook. You're going to have key words in all three of those texts or any others that you care to imagine that will be text specific, right? They have a very particular functional role in the in that particular book, in that particular manuscript and so yeah. forth. And their frequency of usage, therefore, drops way down. They're not going to be universally conserved. And it might be the case that there's a a very special particular word that even, you know, doesn't occur outside the Grapes of Wrath. It was coined by John Steinbeck. Mm -hmm. Low frequency in other texts or no frequency in other texts, but very, very important for the meaning he wished to convey in that novel. So if you think about this, you can see that, yeah, I've I've got this core set of basic units, modules that I find in any text, you know, and the button so forth. But then I pick, I, I think about, well, this is a molecular biology textbook. I'm going to have terms in here that I don't find elsewhere, yeah. right? And if you think along those lines, it's understandable that a species like, let's say, a salamander, salamanders can regenerate their limbs, a remarkable mm. feature of that group. Uh, you amputate the limb of a salamander and, you know, it will grow back, right? We can't do that. Uh, Homo sapiens, I don't think any mammal can regenerate limbs. I'm pretty sure that's the case. In any way, in any event, the proteins that mediate limb regeneration in salamanders are specific to that group. They're orphans or the genes that code for those proteins are orphans. So there's a special thing that that group does, and it's got special hardware mm-hmm. at the cellular level for that remarkable feature. So when you think about the the sequence space and the proteomes that we find in different species in those terms, again, on a, on a rough parallel to natural language, it makes sense that depending on what this species is going to do, it may well have some fraction of its proteome that is dedicated you know, a sort of task specific. Uh, right. So I hope that helps. Uh, yeah. And, and what you're describing, I mean, if this turns out to continue to have more and more data pouring in that confirms this, which seems to be the case the last few years, then the expectation that more data will fill in the gaps is not necessarily correct. In fact, it's it's pointing out that there are discrete and isolated spaces 
that don't have, you know, smooth uh, landscape to use a Darwinian term, you know, a smooth landscape from point A to point B necessarily. Right. I can tell you that in 2004, 2005, when I was getting really evangelistic about orphan genes and, and giving lectures uh, here and there, where I said, you know, this is really exciting, people. We've, we're about a decade into the whole genome uh, sequencing enterprise. This has been a, a working technology for about 10 years now. And one of the things that's emerging are these very high percentages per genome of unique sequences. And people said, oh, Paul, there you go again. You know, you're... <laughs> Running away with a with a, a very weak signal. These are probably artifacts of sampling. Just wait for more data, right? Wait for more data. In fact, I remember giving a talk at Dartmouth. Uh, I think it was two thousand five, and uh, standing room only audience. And there was a microbiologist from the Dartmouth faculty right down in the front row. And you know, when you're up on the speaker's podium, you can see who's <laughs> you can see who's unhappy. And he was. <laughs> looking out at the audience, he was clearly unhappy. And so the Q&A arrives and he shoots his hand up. And, he, and uh, I had shown a figure from a group in the UK from one of their papers where they were trying to predict a trend line for the discovery of orphan genes. Right. And he said, Paul, what's in the numerator position of that figure? And I said, 130 microbial genomes. These are genomes from single-celled bacterial groups. Mm. What's in the denominator? I said, I don't know. He said, nobody does. But it's a huge number, orders of magnitude greater than 130. He said, what you've got is a terrible sample. Mm. And you're committing one of the first errors of statistical inference. You're taking a tiny sample and generalizing over a huge domain that you haven't explored. Okay. And I had to admit, 130 over some, you know, who knows, 10 million, who knows how many bacterial species are out there. Okay, we're approaching 20 years later. I would love to get back there. And if he's still on the faculty, I'll say, you know what? You were wrong because statistical artifacts go away with sampling. Mm -hmm. And the orphan signal has not gone away. In fact, the field of taxonomically restricted genes has attracted some of the, the brightest talent in molecular biology and genetics today. I met some of these people at a meeting this past summer, and they're saying, this is real. This is a real phenomenon. It's not going away. We need to understand it. So there's a case where, you know, I was publicly excoriated for being a bad statistician, but <laughs> the, the data pulled in my direction, I'm happy to say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, in addition to this intrinsically disordered issue, which sounds like it's just a massive challenge for a protein prediction from first principles, um, I was also thinking, Paul, about the fact that, you know, some protein folding we, we understand requires some chaperones. Uh, I was thinking if, if you have protein folding that is happening kind of sequentially as the peptide is coming out of the ribosome, right? Right. If there's an energy minima at some point in that folding process, meaning thermodynamically, that is unfavorable to the ultimate final structure, then it's not going to proceed to the next step without assistance. Now, we know this is the case with lots of molecular machines as they're constructed. Right. And it seems it might be the case with the number of the parts, the proteins as well. So it seems to me that there could be an additional whole set of larger context 
interactions, uh, modifying interactions, the thermodynamic energetics, the other chaperones and helper molecules at play that ultimately relate to this whole question of how we get proteins folded. Not much by by any means. There's probably some that just fold thermodynamically, but it seems to me there's a large group that are probably going to require more than that. Oh, sure. In fact, Jim Shapiro at the University of Chicago, who is an evolutionary theorist, but not a Darwinian by his own that I'm I'm not misrepresenting him by saying that that's by his own statement. He told me once that the interior of a bacterial cell is so crowded it makes Hong Kong look like Nebraska on a on a lazy <laughs> summer afternoon. It's just you know, if you see the, the beautiful illustrations of uh, David Goodsell, the, the science. Right, exactly. Yep. It's just packed, right? So as the, as the nascent protein, the baby protein is coming out of the exit tunnel in the large subunit, it hasn't folded yet. It's very sticky. And that jam-packed interior of a bacterial cell, just to stay with bacteria for a moment, provides a hostile environment for folding. So for many proteins, a chaperone complex, as its name implies, its generic title of chaperone, associates with the ribosome and provides a chamber within which the protein can fold. It's a thermodynamically favorable sort of (laughs) neonatal unit, if you will, to mix Mm -hmm. with I guess. And you know, chaperones are essential. They're essential hardware. Not all proteins, but many of them require a chaperone complex, in, you know, to fold properly. So I think if you, if you think about the protein folding problem from the aspect of physics, what would that be? What would that look like if you were able to solve it? Well, it would be a set of rules, mm-hmm. right? an algorithm actually that said you put this in and these rules will kick in and they will output, take this sequence, feed it through these rules. It will output this structure. Those rules would actually represent a bottleneck. It's in the nature of a rule that it eliminates all kinds of possibilities, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? I think if you think about what the, the molecular diversity that life requires it may be the case that there is no physical algorithm that will do what we want because the actual molecular diversity of life says we, we can't have a bottleneck like that. We need to be able to have a great diversity of structures. And it's, it's really going to be like self-folding origami, right? If I give you a sheet of paper and I say, you know, I want some origami from this sheet of paper, you have total freedom Mm-hmm. Go in any number of directions from that two-dimensional surface, right? Frog, swan, uh, a little boat, an airplane, and so forth. The end product is determined not by the sheet of paper, but by where you intend to go <laughs> in the space of all three-dimensional possibilities right. from a two-dimensional surface. So what would self-folding origami be? Well, it would be that the airplane wants to be, the frog wants to be, the swan wants to be, and don't want to go too far down this digression, but there's something in the nature of a rule that there is no rule for origami, right? 
There's no physical algorithm that will give you both a swan and a boat and an airplane. The, probably the most you can have are the f- first couple of folds, and then you're going to depart on a path towards a distinct three-dimensional target where the rules that are rules that apply such as they are are determined entirely not by the sheet of paper not by the rules but by the endpoint itself yeah this is really fundamental what you're pointing out here paul i really like this this is you know if you have a rule that says or a set of rules that says give me a sheet of paper and it will output a boat that would be a very interesting discovery but it would only output boats that's right you and, would only and, you yeah, yeah you would only get boats yeah. And so one of the examples I've used uh, occasionally, which might be relevant here, is to say to folks, look, if you pull out a motherboard from your computer and look at it, you know, give me an algorithm that can produce all of the parts on this board. Right. Okay. What would that even look like in principle? And it can't be done because it's not the type of thing that is law-like deterministic that produces the same result every time. That's right. And and I still remember uh, reading, oh gosh, Eighth Day of Creation, the wonderful history of the molecular biological revolution by uh, Horace Freeland. I think that's his name. Judson's in there somewhere. I apologize. I'm a little bit low cell today. Where it was Jacques Minot said that when the first protein sequences were solved, they realized that they were incompressible. Mm. In other words, if you wanted the sequence, you had to have the sequence. It was, it was in terms of information theory, the kind of thing that resists being compressed into an algorithm because the algorithm is as long as the sequence is itself. Yeah. Your wonderful analogy of the motherboard, the algorithm for the motherboard would be the motherboard itself, right? It's in, it's in a sense, it's incompressible. Mm-hmm. This is something that I think is a reality about the nature of living things that has been especially revealed by understanding their informational content. It has this, it has this property that if you want a bacterial cell in terms of its DNA base sequence, that's what you need to have. You're not, yeah. going, to, you're not going to get it from any set of physical, physical laws that will be shorter than that sequence itself. Yeah, yeah, that's really fundamental. Well, Paul, um, any final thoughts on where we've gotten with AlphaFold, um, I, what, what we I, can look for? I th- I'm so excited by what they've done. It really is an achievement. And they've made uh, huge advances and, and publicly available. You can go to the AlphaFold site and it will lead you off into all kinds of interesting corners of biology. It really is an exciting time. But we need at the same moment to recognize just how much remains to be solved and and not try to pretend that those unsolved problems are going to yield to the same sort of the same sort of approach that's been so successful right now. There may be another breakthrough around sure. the corner for, for so-called intrinsically disordered proteins and so forth. But I think we've got a lot more surprises to come. And I tell students, you know, you want to work in an exciting biology or exciting <laughs> field that's in its golden age, biology. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My son is uh, interested in high tech. I say, if you want high tech, <laughs> you need to look at <laughs> biology instead of computer science. Yeah. 
That's great. Well, Paul, thanks so much for being with us today to help us understand some of the technological breakthroughs that are happening at this fascinating juncture of artificial intelligence and biology, and also to help us understand some of the key open questions that remain. I love doing it, and I'm always glad to be asked back. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about the remarkable advancements in our understanding of biology and the evidence for design in nature, Join us again here at ID the Future or on our sister YouTube channel, Discovery Science. And as always, consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.